verses 11 through 15. Lend your attention, this is God's word. The house of the wicked will be destroyed, but the tent of the upright will flourish. There is a way that seems right to a man, but its end is the way to death. Even in laughter, the heart may ache, and the end of joy may be grief. The backslider in heart will be filled with the fruit of his ways, and a good man will be filled with the fruit of his ways. The simple believes everything, but the prudent gives thought to his step. Thus far the reading of God's word. Join me in prayer and his, and his blessing on us. Father, how vulnerable we are when even what seems good to us might lead to death. So well, your word instructs us to lean not on our own understanding. Even now, Father, as we open your word, we're in the riches of truth <coughs> are extended unto us. Prepare us to receive, Lord. Prepare us to humbly heed, to consider and to yield, Father, to your word. Whatever it is you call us unto, where there is the call to repent, Father, grant to us repentance. Where there is the call to tremble, grant to us trembling. Where there is the call to take heart, Lord, grant to us the heart to take. Father, whatever it is, we ask that you would bring it to pass, for we know that your word is good, Lord, and its ways are perfect and a rich blessing unto those who walk in them. We thank you for our King who instructs us, for it is from his hand that we receive this instruction. Now, the greater Solomon has come, and he is ours, the one in whom the treasures of riches, of wisdom and knowledge have been opened to us. So we ask, O oh Lord, that you would place us at his feet and teach us to value him aright, his word aright. For we ask in his name, amen. Continuing our time in the Westminster Shorter, you can find questions 73 through 75 on page 973 in your Trinity Psalter hymnal. I believe they're also on the white insert in your bulletin. We continue our time in the Eighth Commandment. But first, this is God's Word. You shall not steal. Thus ends God's Word. And then we'll take up question 74 and 75 together. What is required in the Eighth Commandment? The Eighth Commandment requireth the lawful procuring and furthering the wealth and outward estate of ourselves and others. 
what is forbidden in the Eighth Commandment. The Eighth Commandment forbiddeth whatsoever doth or may unjustly hinder our own or our neighbor's wealth or outward estate. We consider this afternoon the extension of the Eighth Commandment and the instruction that it gives us when it comes to obtaining wealth. The Eighth Commandment instructs us concerning the obtaining of wealth, the possession of wealth, and the use of wealth in general. It has much to say to all three of these facets of our lives as those who have an outward estate, as those who have certain needs, and as those who heed to God's instruction in how we ordinarily provide for those needs. So as I've mentioned before, I'm going to pass by what this commandment teaches us about possessing wealth. Usually there you'll find a discourse of some sort justifying private property. You don't need me to do that for you. You know that you have things and they are rightfully yours in some sense. That's not a problem for you. In fact, I'd say you're too convinced of that. <laughs> Scripture does assume that. It is the governing assumption even for all of God's instructions for us to give. If you think about that, children, if your parents tell you to spend your money wisely, they're assuming that in some sense you have a portion of money that can be reasonably called yours. Perhaps you got it for doing your chores or you got it as a gift for your birthday and they're encouraging you to think well about this limited portion that you have. It's true for Scripture's exhortations to us to steward over our portions well, to, to give generously or to think carefully. The underlying assumption is that God has given you a legitimate portion that can reasonably be called yours and for which you will be responsible at the end of the day. At the end of the day, we all have to turn over the books, as it were, to the one who owns all things and to whom we're ultimately accountable. You don't need me to vindicate the concept of private property for you. You need me to pry your hands off of the property that you possess. That's what you need me to do. And so that's where we can start. This commandment governs the obtaining of wealth. And I want to consider three parts to that this evening. The first, this commandment calls us to moderation in our desire for wealth. Second, this commandment calls us to provident care and study in how to get wealth. And then third, this commandment calls us to diligence in an honest calling. So first, this calls us to moderation. You know I love virtue. Temperance. Maybe fortitude. Temperance Chiefly, Scripture's plain. When it comes to wealth, the number one threat is 
falling foolishly in love. Falling for the wrong thing, which is absurd in and of itself. <laughs> We're in constant danger of setting our affections, our hearts, our minds inordinately, inordinately upon the wealth, the goods, the things of this world. So when it comes to asking how does this commandment govern the approach to obtaining wealth, the first thing or one of the first things we do well to ask is, is my desire for wealth proportionate, fitting, appropriate, or is it inordinate, disproportionate? There's nothing wrong with a healthy understanding of the need that we have and the good that can come from the possession of wealth. But scripture is constantly warning, be careful, because those things have an allure that very easily wins the heart. The larger catechism states it this way, the eighth commandment requires moderation of our judgments, wills, and affections concerning worldly goods. It forbids inordinate prizing and affecting worldly goods. And what inevitably happens, if there are disproportionate desires, then there is distrustful and distracting care and study in getting, keeping, and using worldly goods, which this commandment flatly forbids. Scripture is full of this teaching. I trust you can call to mind any number of places where we are warned about this very thing. The Lord teaches, do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy and thieves break in and steal. John instructs us, do not love the things of this world. Do not love this world or the things of this world. Indeed, this world is passing away. Proverbs instructs us, do not toil to acquire wealth. Be discerning enough to desist. When your eyes light on it, it is gone. For suddenly it sprouts wings, flying like an eagle toward heaven. Proverbs 23, verses 4 and 5. Paul writes, we brought nothing into this world. We can take nothing out. Do not set your hope on the uncertainty of riches, but on God, who richly provides us with everything to enjoy. We are constantly in danger of becoming drunk on love for the things of this world, leading us to a distorted understanding of the things of this world and a disproportionate pursuit of the things of this world. So scripture sobers us up. <laughs> and you can hear some of the things that it's calling the mind. It's saying, hey, have you thought about this in your ridiculous love affair with the things of this world? Or how scripture tells us that she's dangerous. First, wealth is slippery. Did you hear that? All of these teachings, wealth is slippery. It's constantly changing hands. Children, do you like fishing? I don't care for fishing. And one of the reasons I don't like fishing is those fish are so slimy and floppy. It's like you try to grab them and they're out of your hands. And 
Two seconds time. That's what wealth is like. It's just constantly slipping out of hand. Scripture uses the image of a bird. Very difficult to hold on to, even for a little while. Such is the nature of wealth. But beyond being slippery, second, wealth is impermanent. And this is a more profound layer to the reality of wealth. It's fading with this age. Paul says it. You can't take it with you, as it were. It's confined to this life. Its use is confined to this life. The pharaohs were buried with their wealth and their weapons. Undoubtedly, they awoke in the invisible places, profoundly naked and alarmed. Where's all my stuff? (laughs) I thought that was going to help me here. It won't, Paul says. Use it now based upon the understanding that it's temporary. You're not. Paul tells us plainly that that is indeed the case, and that helps us understand the nature of wealth and what we're called to. Third, wealth can't satisfy. Mark, if you're not deceived by this all the time, you think that if I just had this thing, finally I'd be happy. I don't know what it is for you, but some thing that you can acquire that somehow your silly mind thinks, that's what I really need. If that were in place, all would be well. Scripture's plain. It cannot sustain the weight of that hope. Because that's what that is, isn't it? That's hope. It's hope. It's a future vision of what will be that will finally bring about good. Wealth can't sustain your hopes. It can't fulfill your hopes. It will never satisfy. I don't know if you've heard of the novel Anna Karenina. (laughs) We're a bit like Vronsky, who finally obtains his desire only to find himself stunningly dissatisfied. (laughs) But I got the thing I wanted now. What? Restlessness, beloved. Restlessness. There is no amount of stuff that finally brings you to that point where you say, ah, enough. It's like trying to pour water in a bucket with a hole in the bottom. It makes us look foolish. Thinking that somehow an everlasting soul can be satisfied with temporary things. Well, that's patently absurd. But it's not just foolish, it's dangerous. The love of wealth is deadly. Paul tells us plainly, those who desire to be rich fall into temptation, into a snare, into many senseless and harmful desires that plunge people into ruin and destruction. For the love of money is a root of all kinds of evil. It's through this craving that some have wandered from the faith pierced their souls with many pangs. 1 Timothy 6, 9 through 10. Wandered from the faith, beloved. Snares, traps. These are images that take its prey by surprise, right? I've never been caught in a trap, but it doesn't take a ton of imagination to put yourself in that animal's place. You're fine, and then you're not. 
this suddenness, this intensity, this danger that the love of wealth has. It's like, oh no, I can pursue it and I'll be fine. I can make this my aim and emerge unscathed. No, you can't. I promise. God's word tells us that. You're playing with fire. It's like the siren call. It's so alluring. It's so enticing. It's deceived so many men into thinking, I'll be the one to navigate to it and ruin. Assuredly. We are in need of constantly returning to this light. There's not one passage or two passages or three passages or four passages. You are belligerent in your insistence on this matter. <laughs> no, 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 I can do it. No, 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 it can do it. Scripture says, no, 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 you can't, it doesn't. You need to hear this. Moderation in terms of our understanding of the wealth of this world and its, use, its usage. Beloved, the one who owns the cattle on a thousand hills, the one who made the riches of this earth says, earthly riches, they're not so great. They're not so splendid to be worthy of your deepest affections and longings. I have not made you for them. I've made you for me. This is why Christ has come, is it not? To rescue us from the deceit, the lie, we're constantly countenancing that our satisfaction can be found somewhere other than the true and living God, that our satisfaction can be found in this or this, this or that configuration according to my understanding and my desires. Christ has come to rescue us from that deceitful plight. And to give us a taste of the excellencies of the only one who can satisfy. Have you tasted this? You know those riches can't compare to stuff. I don't care if you've had the greatest feast conceivable in this world. And make no mistake, most of us have experienced feasts the likes of which ancient kings alone would have had access to. The riches of the knowledge of God in Jesus Christ, beloved. Have you tasted those riches? It's not just hyperbole to hear Proverbs extol the excellencies of wisdom which surpasses gold, which surpasses silver. It's not hyperbole when Paul says that the treasures and the riches of wisdom and knowledge are found in a person, beloved, the Lord Jesus Christ, who welcomes you as a friend in the most intimate communion conceivable as you take up his word, as you come to him in prayer, as you gather with the assembly of the redeemed and declare for all the world to hear, Jesus Christ is Lord. Keep your stuff. This is better by far to belong to the true and living God who incidentally owns all things, beloved, who gives all things, beloved. It's far better than having anything, beloved. Can you hear that? That's what Paul 
tells us that there's no gain to be had in pursuing wealth, but there is gain to be had somewhere. And it's in looking like God. That's what he says. Godliness with contentment is great gain. He takes this up in this part of his epistle where he's discussing riches, which people normally think is gain. Or in this instance, it seems that people are distorting the faith and perverting it into a way to gain in lesser ways. But he's plainly saying, he's like, look, the riches that are opened unto us are being like God, beloved. <laughs> That's what Christ has opened to us. It's what started now. And so it's no coincidence that he says, pursue righteousness, pursue godliness, pursue faith, pursue love. He may as well be saying, pursue true treasure. Because those things are better by far. Paul says everything fades, but love remains. Paul says you can't take this other stuff with you, but love lasts forever. Like growth in the knowledge of God, God's love for us. Growth in the response of love, God's Love for us responded to in love, a true love extended towards others. In other words, godliness. He says that is gain, not just for this life, but for age upon age upon age, mysteriously. It's a sober vision, but mark how often our hearts prefer the lesser treasures to the true treasure. The true treasure of Christ and the manifold spiritual blessings which come unto us in him. Beloved, those are better. I assure you, they're better. They're better. They're better. I speak on good authority, namely the word of God, beloved. But we're also called to a provident care and study how to get, keep, and use wealth. It would be tempting in the light of what I just said, rather emphatically, admitted, to conclude, well, then we must utterly despise wealth. We can never think about it ever, 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 ever. And to do so is the height of impiety. Unfortunately, Scripture does not afford us such a simple and easy solution. Rather, that would be easy. In a lot of ways, that would be easy, I think. So I was wrestling with this. Rather, it calls us into the much more difficult task of working and studying how to provide for ourselves and others while not trusting our efforts or making wealth the object of our hope. That's harder, isn't it? That's a much more delicate line to walk. That's a spiritual course, beloved. It's more difficult by far. He doesn't extend to us the luxury of not working or not studying how to make provision for the things that we need. If on the one hand he says, put not your hope in riches, on the other hand he says, if you don't work, you don't eat. <laughs> That's from God's word too. It sounds harsh, but it's right there. This is a general rule, certainly, as we've explored. There are certainly exceptions to that. We exist in this uneasy tension of needing certain things for life but not reducing life to the pursuit of these basic things. 
I mean, I wrote that. I was like, yeah, that, there's a, that's, that's delicate. <laughs> you need certain things to live, and yet living is more than the obtaining of these things for life. That's just what Christ says when he says, Beloved, the body is more than clothes and food. Life is more than these things. On the one level we acknowledge, look, we have need of these things. And we go on to acknowledge, say, like, the ordinary way that God provides these things is through our labors with the strength and the industry that he's given us. And yet all of that exists ensconced in this call to trust him, ultimately, and not the obtaining of these things. This seems to me delicate. Proverbs 27, one of the many places which touch on the need for care and study, provision. Proverbs 27, 23 through 27, know well the condition of your flocks and give attention to your herds. For riches do not last forever, and does a crown endure to all generations? When the grass is gone and the new growth appears and the vegetation of the mountains is gathered, the lambs will provide your clothing, and the goats the price of a field. There will be enough goat's milk for your food, for the food of your household, and the maintenance of your girls." That was so charming to me as a father of three girls, like the maintenance of your girls. I don't know why it says girls there. It's so lovely. <laughs> but you can hear the same observation being made. On the one hand, Proverbs and indeed all of Scripture sobers us to the view of wealth. On the other hand, we're also summoned to exercise thought and care in the getting of the things that we need. And you hear the same observation being made here about the slippery nature of wealth, about the transient and impermanent nature of wealth. Riches do not last forever. Does a crown endure for all generations? But here Solomon isn't concluding, therefore don't set your hope on them. Rather, he's concluding, therefore you must be constantly laboring in this life. That's what he says. Or in other words, he says, to produce is better than to possess. That's what the thrust of this passage seems to be. So scripture does weigh in on that age-old question, is it better to give a man a fish or to teach him how to fish? I would say, do you have a different metaphor? I hate fishing. <laughs> <laughs> Scripture weighs in and says it's better by far to teach a man to fish. That's what Solomon is saying here. He's saying the things you have stored up, they're not going to last forever. So you need to give attention to the future in terms of how what you do have can yield produce. Now you can note again that the vision of what is necessary is very humble here. It's always food and clothing. Do we have food and clothing? Paul says that explicitly. If we have food and clothing, that's enough. Is it, though? I mean, it doesn't even say, like, a certain, like, style of clothing or a certain, like, level of food. It's like, well, like, if I have, like, steak once a week, then it's enough. Like, if I can shop at Lulu, then it's enough. Like, no, look, if you have clothing and food, it's enough 
So it's a very sober vision. We have all sorts of odd notions about what we are entitled to with reference to our standard of living. Scripture does not make those guarantees. You are not promised any standard of living in Scripture beyond this bare promise of the Father knows you have needs. He designed you to have those needs. And he's going to meet those needs. He doesn't begrudge you the meeting of those needs. I think there's a sobering word for us there. It's very easy. We tend to lambast others for their growth and entitlement, but just imagine the Lord knocked you down one socioeconomic status and examine how entitled your heart feels. It's humbling, isn't it? Like we presume that like we've earned and thus deserve by some sort of absolute right this extraordinary standard of living that we've been given. Beloved, our standard of living is like the product of a long time of a lot of people sacrificing. So we know something of what it means to slip into entitlement. There's a humbling word for us there. So we have these needs. God says, I know you have these needs, and the way that you're going to get these needs on the whole, by and large, as a rule, is by attention and care. Marking the opportunity that's in front of you. Marking the abilities that I've given you. But looking to the future. Industry and action are necessary and they're superior to the delusions and the dreams of thinking that what I have will last forever. <laughs> that somehow this will never fade. If you read Proverbs 31, you'll be struck by the industriousness of the woman. Anybody else struck by that? The industriousness of that woman in Proverbs 31? She's a remarkable, remarkable woman. Her care, her foresight, her tireless labor. You'll see again the variations on food and clothing which she is securing for her household. There's a vision of loveliness there that isn't at odds with the call of Christ, as it were. The gospel. There's nothing about the gospel that removes that reality. There's nothing about the gospel that says, don't worry, that's been suspended, or don't worry, that's been fulfilled. You need not give heed to that. But rather, God calls us to it, and if he calls it, us to it, he's with us in it. If the Eighth Commandment summons us not to place our hopes on obtaining riches, it also summons us to give due consideration to how we might provide for ourselves and others. This is what Paul writes, 1 Timothy 5, 8, If anyone does not provide for his relatives and especially for members of his household, he has denied the faith and is worse than an unbeliever. So you can hear there Paul giving the gospel foundation for our earnest labors in this area. He's saying, no, 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 like if you're not doing this, you're denying the faith. So for him, he's drawing a line directly from the gospel, what we believe to be true, what Christ has summoned us to, and thus what he's empowering us in, and this very mundane reality of taking care to provide for ourselves and others. 
To refuse or to ignore this calling amounts to denying the faith, indeed being worse than an unbeliever. Why does Paul say that? Calvin explains, There is no piety toward God when a person can lay aside the feelings of humanity. Would faith, which makes us sons of God, render us worse than brute beasts? I love Calvin. The answer is no. <laughs> okay, for those who are interested, I know several of you are having this discussion right now. Paul says, even the light of nature leads unbelievers in the proper way. Even natural law leads unbelievers in this way. How repugnant for you who have supernatural revelation. Even the pagans know they can't do this. How? The light of nature. Natural law. We don't have to dwell on that at any length, but Calvin makes it plain. The light of nature. Paul makes it plain. Look, even the unbelievers know that this is a non-negotiable good. How much more you, beloved? The point is that the Lord Jesus Christ has purchased and is refreshing people in the image of God. Refreshing people, renewing people. He's not creating something wholly other. He is renewing the vision of man. So Paul can draw a direct line from the gospel to you working to provide for your family. That's, that's astonishing, isn't it? I know it's more surprising than that. <laughs> it's remarkable that the gospel reaches in terms of its power, in terms of its provision into such a mundane register. Market that doesn't ennoble your labors to a certain degree. I guess if you were so inclined, you would say that there is such a thing as a Christian baker in this way, namely in the way that connects honest labor to the life lived in faith in the gospel. In that very restricted sense, I think Paul would say, yeah, you labor as a Christian. You labor with an understanding that this is the vision of man which Christ is renewing, and you're a part of that. And that's incredibly encouraging. And so it leads very simply to this last calling of an honest calling and diligence therein. We've already mentioned that there's lots of ways to gain in this life. And very many of them are closed to us. They're forbidden. All theft, all robbery, all fraud, all oppression, all exploitation, all extortion. We're forbidden all unlawful callings and all unjust means of gain. We're summoned to honest work and diligence therein. And striking that many forms of work are open to us. That's striking. Again, the goodness of the Lord on display and just the vast number of possibilities that are afforded to us by our unique circumstances and how you can make a living for yourself and others. 
And we really are living with a sort of embarrassment of riches. There was a young man who was looking at the prospect of having a family. It's probably one of the easiest times in life to just find work that you can actually sustain a family with. The Lord is to be praised for that. That is a kindness that he has extended to us. We need not overlook that kindness. And make no mistake, he summons you to that. But not only does he say there's all sorts of legitimate ways, all sorts of legitimate opportunities, the strength I've given you, the abilities I've given you, gainfully employed, all of which is an excellency of mind set on display. He also says, work hard. Proverbs 10.4, the slack hand makes full, poor, and the diligent hand makes rich. We're struck by the simple call to do whatever your hand finds to do with all your might. Scripture says that. Whatever your hand finds to do, do it with all your strength. Laboring as those who bear the name of Christ ennobles everything that we do. You're not building the kingdom by laboring with honesty and integrity. But you are pleasing the Father as you do that in faith. As you yield your labor not unto men, but unto the Lord. I don't know if it strikes you as much, but the, the gaze of the Father in pleasure upon the children is one of the most ennobling gazes that exists. Does this resonate with you? I think it's difficult to get your mind around because we're so frequently thinking of God as someone who's constantly angry with us. Do you think that way? Of course you do. <laughs> of course you do. And so the scriptures ushering us into this new relationship with the father as father. Where his gaze isn't one of anger, but one of delight. And it's a gaze that he himself has established and verified by giving the beloved son. Such that he has assured you that his love is not built upon your heart because it precedes your heart beloved no so if we exist in that then we shed that notion of an angry god and enter into the notion of god as father and if that truly depicts for us something about God, and Scripture is constantly inviting us into the mystery of who God is via pictures that are accessible to us, right? Look, if you know how to give good gifts to your children, even though you're the worst, how much more your Heavenly Father? Okay, so if that's an accurate picture, think about your own heart towards your child, fathers. For those of you who had relatively good men as fathers, it's not to say there aren't some real monsters out there. Just like Paul isn't saying that every single pagan knows that they have to provide for their family. He's saying on the whole, it's still recognizable. On the whole, it's still recognizable. 
Consider the gaze of the father upon the child as they earnestly respond in faith to the father's word. As they earnestly say, look at me, father. Beloved, I think there is a real vein of encouragement to be had there once we realize that the Father's gaze is fixed upon us chiefly in the Lord Jesus Christ and then secondarily in the life of faith that unfolds responding to the Lord Jesus Christ. Such, we are not reduced to any sort of simplistic, God is only ever happy with everything that you do. That's not true when it comes to our sin. We know that we can grieve the Spirit. We know that we can incur the Father's displeasure, but we still exist within the loving gaze of the Father, such that the other side has to open up as well. Namely, He delights in us in actuality, not just hypothetically. And that ennobles, doesn't it? Have I lost you? We've mentioned this before when I was a kid, when our parents would attend our baseball games or choir concerts, plays, whatever it was. The significance of that was lost on me, but not on them. They were filled with a unique delight that belonged specifically to them as the parents of the one who was doing. Even as a father of young children, I know something of this special pleasure. As I hear your children reciting their catechism questions, singing Psalm 138, raising their hands to tell me what they know about Adam and Eve, what they know about Abraham. Those are your labors reflected in their little lives, but I'm delighting in it. <laughs> Because I love them because they belong to Christ. And I feel a swell of pride and delight. Beloved, those are true glimpses into the Father's profound love for us. It's a profounder love still because he established us in this position while we were still enemies. For that's when Christ died for us. But make no mistake... Beloved, the delight that he has uniquely and supremely in the Son truly spills over to those who belong to the Son, those who are in the Son, those who are following the Son, and those who heed. This call into something so simple, so good, is whatever your hand finds to do, do it with all your might. We don't believe that we do everything that dwells within us so that God will give grace. We believe that God has given grace and thus he is worthy of everything in us, beloved. And this extends to the excellencies of whatever work he's given you to do. And his constant encouragement that says, I see, I see, and I love you. Do well. Let's pray. Father, we're prone to get this wrong in so many ways. Even now we're vulnerable to it, Lord. We would see and understand the truth of your word and to walk in true faith following the Son and 
would mark, Lord, your unique kindnesses to us in the provision you've given us and the excellencies of opportunity and ability and provision that you've made for us, Lord. Keep us from that grumbling discontent. Fill our hearts with thankfulness. Help us, O oh Lord, to see that we follow Christ even in these mundane ways of putting our hand to the work you've given us to do with, with honesty and with strength. Meet us in these ways, Father, we ask in Christ's name. Amen.